Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 36, The World's Most Delicious Bird. Out on the wild plains of Africa, there is a little bird called the red-billed quila. Pretty sure that's how you say that. Quila. Kula. On first blush, there isn't anything that impressive about them. They look like a sparrow, a sparrow with a remarkably red bill. But the red-billed quila has a great claim to fame. They are the bird with the biggest wild population in the world. By some estimates, there are over 1.5 billion of these little birds. They form into huge flocks and strip the landscape clean of food. Their feeding habits make them look a little like a rolling cloud. The birds land as a group, and once those at the back of the flock have eaten their fill, they will take to the air and leapfrog over those in the front to reach the next grazing strip. And so, like waves, they roll over and over each other as they creep across the land. When they turn up on farms, they can become a bit of a pest. Sometimes they're even called Africa's feathered locust. Attempts to curtail their huge population haven't been overly successful, so for now they are still the farmer's scourge. Now, while there is no doubt that the quila is impressive, the bird we're going to talk about today dwarfs their population by a factor of almost 15. That's right, today we're talking about the humble chicken. Although, unlike the quila, these birds have been tamed and harnessed to serve humanity's insatiable appetite. As with much of the natural world, sometimes it seems that the only things we people help to grow are the things we exploit. Today, there are more than 20 billion chickens in the world. How many birds is that? Well, if you were to pick 10 birds at random from anywhere in the world and looked at what species you got, on average, 7 would be chickens and the other three would be some wild bird. They represent 70% of the total global bird population, and they all exist to feed us people. But the story of the chicken is a long one, so long, that it's going to take two episodes to get through it all, so please sit back and relax as we delve into the life story of the finger-licking good Gallus Gallus Domesticus, the domesticated chicken. To tell the story of the chicken, we need to go back a long way and meet a bird you've maybe never heard of, the red jungle fowl. This is the domestic chicken's closest relative. In fact, they are so closely related that, if given the opportunity, the two can still interbreed. The red jungle fowl is a native of Southeast Asia, living in the tropical jungles of Bangladesh, Myanmar, Thailand, southern China, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. While they do have a large range, in the wild the red jungle fowl is an endangered bird, mostly because of habitat destruction. Although they can be found in a diverse range of habitats, their favourite place is bamboo forests. They even used to be known as the bamboo fowl. These forests were great because they provided shelter from any predatory raptors flying above, an abundance of food, and good elevated perches for them to roost on at night. They are game birds belonging to the pheasant family, and related to other fowl like quail, pheasant, turkey, and guinea fowl. 
Like their chicken descendants, jungle fowl are omnivorous, and are just as happy eating lizards and worms as they are eating fruit and grain. Basically, if it can fit down their throat, they're gonna eat it. Now, when you look at a male red jungle fowl, it looks just like a rooster. Although I suppose we should use the more technically correct terminology for a male chicken. The cock. Wait, what was that? I said the cock. Ah, my old friend censorship. Where would we be without the Puritans? Well, we wouldn't have the word rooster for one. The word cock has always been used to describe male birds. The females, of course, are hens. But the story goes that in America, during the 18th century, the Puritans were growing increasingly uncomfortable with the word because of its secondary meaning, a penis. And so they set out in search of a less smutty alternative and settled on rooster. Supposedly because they are a bird which roosts. You know, pretty sure that's what all birds do though. But you know what? We are adults here, mostly adults, maybe kids, maybe, but, but uh, I, I don't know. Either way, I'm sure we're all mature enough to call a cock a cock. Now, where was I? Ah yes, male jungle fowl do look like the barnyard cocks we would be used to. They've got long, flowing, glossy green tail feathers, a golden mane around their neck, a prominent red wattle and comb on their head, and long, sharp spurs on the back of their legs. The hens do look a little different. They're a bit more bare-faced and maybe a deeper, richer brown colour than we would be used to. But these are the ancestors of the chickens we know and love today. Of course, modern chickens also have a splash of the other three species of jungle fowl mixed into their DNA too. The other three wild species are the grey and green jungle fowl and the Sri Lankan jungle fowl. Fun fact, the Sri Lankan jungle fowl used to be known as Lafayette's jungle fowl, named after the American and French revolutionary general, the Marquise de Lafayette, who famously had nothing to do with Sri Lanka or this bird. So probably for the best that it got its name changed. Colonialism, yay! As you might expect, the wild jungle fowl are much smaller than their domesticated cousins. This is because we have selectively bred chickens to be as buff as possible so we can slice more meat off the bone. A typical jungle fowl hen probably only weighs about a kilo. A domestic hen, bred for meat, could weigh anywhere between 2.5 to 4 kilos. That's upward of 5.5 pounds. One of the most prominent features of chickens and jungle fowl are their facial ornamentation. These are the red, fleshy wattle and comb, which are two different things. The wattle hangs from the cheeks, and the comb is the crest on top of the head. Taken together, they are both types of car uncles. Other birds like turkeys also sport these fleshy appendages. They're usually a bright red colour, which acts as an indication of the bird's health and fitness. Both males and females have them, but they are far more prominent in males. Now, the cocks have two other features that are worth touching on. The first is crowing, that very famous cock-a-doodle-doo. Roll the audio! <coughs> now, the cock's crow is a territorial thing. He's marking out his turf and warning other males to keep away from his ladies. It can also be a warning to the flock if danger is about. This trait has carried over to the domestic bird and is famously associated with dawn. So why do cocks crow first thing in the morning? Well, there's no satisfying answer to this. 
most birds make a racket first thing in the morning, and at some point we will take a closer look at the dawn chorus. Chickens are no different in this regard, they're just joining in and reminding everyone of where their territory is. The only reason cocks are so strongly associated with this practice is because they're so damn loud. Some can belt out a doodle-doo at up to 90 decibels, which is about as loud as a lawnmower. The reason their calls are associated with the morning is because they're so much louder than any other bird, and they have a tendency to wake people up. Now, the other thing cocks are famous for is fighting. Cockfights. We'll touch on this more in the second episode, but the weapon cocks use to do battle is their spurs, a great pointy thing that grows out the back of their leg. We might be forgiven to think that the spur is like their talon or a claw, but the spur is part of their leg bone that protrudes out. It's literally a bone spur. It also precluded them from serving in the Vietnam War. Yes, that was a Donald Trump joke. The bone is covered in keratin the same stuff their beaks are made out of. Now, cocks have these spurs so they can defend the flock. If a loud crowing isn't enough to deter a foe, then the cock will quickly show you that its kick is worse than its chirp. These big sharp spurs can cause serious damage, and they will use them on rival males if they try to muscle into their territory. And people have hijacked this behaviour and turned it into cockfighting. More on that next time. Now, this all comes about because of the social structure of jungle fowl flocks, where there will be several hens, an alpha male which protects the flock, along with several subordinate males. You would have no doubt heard the term pecking order when it comes to chickens. And indeed, their social groups have complex hierarchies, with the dominant male being at the top. Next in line is the dominant hen. This will be the cock's first lady, and the one he will generally mate with. Then comes everyone else in the flock, the subordinate males and females. But even then, there will be an order, and every bird will know their place. In their natural setting, the jungle fowl would form flocks of up to about 20 birds, with a higher female-to-male ratio. Now, as a chicken, you want to try to get as close to the top of the flock as you can, because it does have an impact on how much access you might get to food. Several factors contribute to who will become top chicken. Dominant males tend to have more impressive and bright combs. They also have alpha-type personalities to match. They tend to be more inquisitive, aggressive, and vigilant. As we would expect, the more dominant birds tend to have more babies, although curiously, the dominant hens have been found to be more reluctant to mate than subordinate hens. Potentially, this is because of their high social status. They can afford to be more choosy about who their mate is. It is interesting to note that, much like us, chickens and jungle fowl prefer to live in stable societies with well-established hierarchies. Whether dominant or subordinate, birds with a stable social structure tend to be less aggressive to each other. They eat more food and lay more eggs than when there is a power vacuum and society is in a state of flux. Revolution! Chickens don't care for it. They want to live the peaceful life. Now, as these birds maintain a complex social structure, it shouldn't come as a surprise that they also seem to be sophisticated communicators. I mean, how else do you hold society together than through talking to each other? They have at least 24 distinct vocalizations that they use in different situations to communicate with the group, and that's on top of visual displays. Some typical chicken noises include contented clucks, 
Happy chickens make this noise, basically muttering to themselves while they forage. They also have what some people call the egg song, sung after laying an egg. It's more of a boisterous kind of noise. No doubt laying an egg is a point of pride for them that must be communicated to the whole flock. A similar call is their alarm call. Usually this noise will be made by the dominant cock or hen as a warning to the rest of the flock to take flight. And finally, did you know chickens also purr? Much like a cat, they purr when happy and content, and pet chickens even purr when they're being petted. Do we, do we have some chicken purring sounds? Oh, we do! Well, roll that audio! It's kind of cute. So that's the voice, but chickens have more to go off than that. One of their more prominent visual displays is something the males do called tidbitting. When a male finds a particularly tasty snack, he won't eat it himself. Rather, he will perform a little dance next to it, pointing with his beak and clucking. He may even pick it up and drop it repeatedly. He doesn't want it for himself. He's trying to draw it to the attention of the hens, offering it up to them. Curiously, mother hens also perform the same display for their chicks, drawing their attention to a nice snack, teaching them what's good to eat. So tidbitting seems to have two functions for the fowl, as a method to feed and train their babies, and as a courtship and bonding practice. Maybe here would be a good time to touch on eggs, which is a natural consequence of courtship behaviour. What a segue! Now, chickens are unique birds in the sense that they can lay eggs almost daily, and they lay unfertilised eggs. Now, we will dive into this a little more when we get to the domestication question, because essentially we have bred chickens to do that. This is also a natural tendency in the jungle fowl. Now, laying unfertilised eggs is strange. Most birds don't do it. It's easy to understand why they wouldn't do it. It takes a lot of energy to grow and lay an egg. There isn't much point doing it if it isn't gonna hatch. Of course, it can happen from time to time for a variety of reasons, but usually it's because something has gone wrong. Most birds won't do it deliberately. The exceptions are chickens, other game birds, ducks, emu, and ostrich. And if we look at the bird family tree, we will see that they are all the ancient lineages of birds that are more closely related to each other than they are to anything else. The only exception that I'm aware of, there are always exceptions, are a few species of parrots who also lay unfertilised eggs. So what's the deal? Well, in the wild, jungle fowl don't usually lay unfertilised eggs either, and that's mainly because there are males around that fertilise said eggs. A typical jungle fowl might lay between 15 and 20 eggs a year. But jungle fowl are different to normal birds. During the breeding season, hens will lay an egg a day until they have a clutch of about six. It was during the domestication process that people discovered that if they removed the eggs, she would continue to lay, being tricked into thinking that the clutch was not yet complete. Generally, the hen only lays eggs during the breeding season, however, if conditions are good, the jungle fowl can be an opportunistic breeder and extend how long they breed through the year. Yet another trait that was taken advantage of during their domestication. More on that next time. When fertilised, a hen will incubate her eggs for some 20 plus days. 
Research has shown that by the twelfth day, the chicks can hear and will begin to communicate with each other, cheeping through the shells. It is speculated that through this behaviour, they actually coordinate themselves to all hatch simultaneously. Now, the most interesting and potentially humorous thing that happens when chicks hatch is that they imprint on the first thing they see. People have known for centuries that if a chick hatches and it sees something other than its mother, it will bond with it and believe it is their parent. This goes for farmers, dogs, cats, really anything that happens to be in the vicinity. But it has only been since the late 1800s that we worked out what's going on. In the farmyard world, this imprinting practice might seem a bit ridiculous, especially when we see a foolish baby chicken following a golden retriever around. But for the jungle fowl, in their natural setting, this is probably quite clever. In the jungle, the first thing a chick is going to see is always going to be its mother. That's the thing that's been incubating it after all. But what researchers showed was that this imprinting had to happen inside a sensitive period of up to about three days. They found that if you kept a hood on the chick and removed it after the sensitive period had elapsed, it would flee from the first thing it saw rather than run to it. Once that imprinting period has elapsed, the natural fear response to new stimuli kicks in. Research also showed that the chicks imprint on the voice of their mother as well. And again, if that voice is first introduced after the sensitive period has elapsed, the chick will be indifferent to it. This kind of imprinting happens with all birds to a certain extent, but it is really only in an unnatural setting, like a farm, where you can see the behaviour going wrong. And when you see it going wrong, that's your chance to learn how it should look when it goes right. So it's not a behaviour that is unique to chickens or jungle fowl, but it was through these birds that we learned how it worked. Once the chicks are hatched and following their mother, though, hens are generally attentive and good parents. We have already seen how mothers will teach their chicks what to eat. But research has also shown that the chicken is quite an empathetic animal. Hens have been shown to respond with concern when their chicks are in distress. Their heart rates increase, as do vocal communication like maternal clucks to comfort or warn their chicks of danger. And for such social animals, this probably shouldn't be a surprise. We know from studying other birds that when they have social structures, they tend to be more intelligent as well. This is also true for chickens. They have strong facial recognition, both for their own flock and people. And studies have shown that they can do basic arithmetic. They can understand the difference between adding and subtracting up to five objects. They can find and remember where things have been hidden, showing high memory and spatial awareness. They're also emotional creatures, and anyone that has kept chickens will know that they display behaviours that are consistent with fear, contentment, frustration, and excitement. And they also have their own personalities, preferences, likes, dislikes. For a time, I lived in a house that had three chickens, and they were all different birds. One was a brash troublemaker, another was more quiet and docile, and another was a little more skittish. We called them Benny and the Jets. That's one bird named Benny, one bird named Ender, and one bird named Jets. Benny and the Jets. Sometimes I felt like Ender didn't have a, much of a personality. Maybe because we called her Ender. Moving on. Maybe now we should start looking at how the jungle fowl was originally domesticated. Now, domestication does have a specific meaning, and it is different from taming an animal. To domesticate something is to change it. 
it is to selectively breed traits into the animal that are desirable and useful to humans, and it makes them different to their wild counterparts. And it was from this process of looking at how farmers selectively breed desired traits in domestic animals that Darwin first investigated and began to build his ideas of evolution. Because that's what's happening. It's evolution, just artificially directed by us people instead of nature. And this is the same for all domesticated animals, from livestock like cows, sheep and pigs, to pets like cats and dogs. We even domesticated plants. Pretty much all commercial crops are domesticated versions of their original wild form. This differs from an animal like a tiger or elephant that you might see in a zoo. It may have been born in captivity or taken from the wild and taught to be calm around people, but it is still identical to its wild counterpart. Domestic animals, although they can still often interbreed with their wild form, are physically different, and that's why they get a different scientific name. The red jungle fowl is Gallus gallus. The chicken is Gallus gallus domesticus. Technically, it's a subspecies, and it still shares a lot of the same behaviour traits I've already mentioned. In the case of the chicken, the new traits we bred into them are pretty obvious, and we'll get into that in the next episode. But in general, their temperament has changed to be calmer, and they've been bred to grow larger and lay more eggs. As it turns out, chickens have been with humans for a long time. It's hard to put an exact date on when we first began to domesticate these birds. Ah, to hell with it. It was the 20th of April, 6092 BCE. It is suspected that the chicken has been kept for around 8,000 years. Yeah, give or take a millennium. And in fact, it was probably domesticated multiple times around Southeast Asia and even interbred with other species of jungle fowl. For example, the yellow legs that are common to many domesticated chickens is a trait associated with the grey jungle fowl, not the red. Ironically, Red jungle fowl have grey legs. Grey jungle fowl have yellow legs. There are no yellow jungle fowl. Wait, what? Some of the earliest recorded archaeological evidence of domesticated chickens comes from China, dating back to some time before 6000 BCE. Although some of that evidence is disputed, we know with certainty that they were present in the Indus Valley civilization from at least 4000 BCE. Now, domestication isn't easy. With birds, we've probably only managed it a dozen times. You've got chickens, ducks, geese, skinny fowl, turkeys, quails, pigeons, and canaries. With the exception of the pigeons and canaries, everything else is a game bird or waterfowl, which are quite closely related. And the game birds all have similar traits. They're not great at flying, so you can easily catch and pen them. They're omnivorous. They're not fussy eaters, so you can feed them any old scrap. And they're super willing to breed and do it a lot. When these traits all come together, you've got yourself a prime candidate for domestication. You need something you can catch and pen, something you can easily feed, and something that will reproduce willingly. Now that reproduce willingly part is important, because that's the bit that allows us to quickly, selectively breed traits into the animal, and gradually change them over time. Chickens tick all those boxes. So that's how the jungle fowl first caught the eye of our ancestors. The next part of our story is about how the chicken went from its initial domestication to become the bird that we all know today. We have taken them and bred them into more than 150 different varieties. Many of those exist solely for economic purposes. But that is a different, and honestly 
darker story. So next week, and yes, for the first time ever, Bird of the Week is going to release back-to-back weekly episodes, I will bring you the second part of our story on the chicken. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to be a happy one. But join me for that next time. Now, if you still want some bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about the chicken. I mean, obviously. The name is so much more than just the thing you call someone when they're being a coward. But where did the word come from? Well, for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash bird of the week, all one word link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show. Just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com. And I'll add you to the mailing list where you'll get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Okay, stop me if you've heard this one. Why did the chicken cross the road?